0: Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so already, please consider leaving our show a rating and review on your favorite podcatching source. Good ratings and reviews help independent podcasts like this one break away from the pack, and it's something that you can do while you're listening to the show. It's Halloween season, and one of my friends and regular listeners, Jeff, also known as Podcast Father, suggested I do an episode about the Halloween movies. I was initially hesitant to do so because there's already been a number of documentaries and books and podcasts who have gone into great detail about the various films. But Jeff persisted and I eventually acquiesced, even though I was already in the middle of writing an episode about Alan Smithy movies that I was going to record for this episode slot, which itself was a replacement for an episode about orphan films That I was in the middle of writing that I was going to record for this episode slot. So those episodes will be coming soon. But for now, let's do a dive into Halloween movies. I'm going to call this episode A Brief History of the Halloween Series. The genesis of the Halloween cinematic universe began with a producer named Erwin Yablons. Although his father was a cab driver and his mom a housewife, both Erwin and his younger brother Frank would become involved in the motion picture business. Frank would have the better career working his way up the ranks from beginning in the motion picture sales department for Warner Brothers in 1956 to becoming the president of Paramount Pictures in 1971. During his three-year run at the studio, Frank would help bring the first two Godfather films, Chinatown, The Conversation, Paper Moon, and Harold and Maude to the screen. After leaving Paramount in 1974, Frank Yablons would write and or produce a number of movies through his own production company, including Silver Streak, North Dallas 40, and most notably, the Camp Misfire known as Mommy Dearest. No! What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever? With the help of some seed money from his younger brother, Irwin would open Compass International Pictures in 1976. If you don't recognize the name Compass International Pictures, that's okay. They only produced eight movies during their four-year existence. But if you're a fan of horror films, you know several of those titles including David Schmoller's Tourist Trap, Vernon Zimmerman's Fade to Black, Jeffrey Bloom's Blood Beach, Tom DeSimone's Hell Night, and, depending on your personal preferences, Mark L. Lester's Roller Boogie, whose original story was created by Erwin Yablons. But Compass's most famous production, which they would also release themselves, was John Carpenter's Halloween. You've heard the saying, success has many parents. That was certainly the case with Halloween. Depending on who you spoke to and when you spoke to them, the story of how Halloween came to be differs. The general consensus is that Erwin Yablans had an idea for a movie. Or, more specifically, a title and a logline. The Babysitter Murders, in which a group of babysitters are being stalked by a psychopath. That's it. That's all Erwin had. Irwin had met John Carpenter when Irwin's previous company, Turtle Releasing, acquired Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13 for release in 1976. The film was not that much of a success in theaters, but Yablons liked Carpenter and his ability to make a movie look great on a very low budget. Yablons would call Carpenter at his Hollywood apartment in early 1977 to pitch him the idea for the Babysitter Murders. Carpenter, who was only getting offers to direct TV movies after Assault on Precinct 13, accepted the job, provided he could bring his girlfriend, Deborah Hill, aboard as a co-writer and producer that Carpenter got to direct and that he would be able to get a possessory credit, John Carpenter's The Babysitter Murders. Yablons agreed, provided Carpenter would accept $10,000 for all of his services. Now, some sources say it was Yablons who came up with the idea to set the movie on Halloween, and some say it was Carpenter and Hill. Does it matter? Not really. What matters is that Carpenter and Hill came up with a brilliant and tight screenplay together. Hill, who herself was a babysitter in her teen years, wrote for Lori, Annie, and Linda, while Carpenter concentrated on Michael and Dr. Loomis. And again, depending on your source, The screenplay came together in 10 days, or 21 days. Does it matter? Not really. When the pair were done with the screenplay, they and Yablons took it to producer and director Mustafa Akkad, with whom Yablons worked with from time to time, to secure financing. Akkad had just finished producing and directing the soon-to-be-controversial religious drama Mohammed, Messenger of God, and had... Roughly $300,000 budget surplus from that $15 million movie. It would be the best $300,000 investment a COD would ever make. Because of the limited budget, Carpenter could not get his first choice to play Dr. Loomis, Peter Cushing. Now that Cushing's star was on the rise once again, thanks to his appearance in a little sci-fi movie called Star Wars. They then went to Cushing's friend and frequent co-star, Christopher Lee but he too would turn it down because of the low $20,000 salary, something Lee would admit years later as being the biggest regret of his storied career. Fellow Brit Donald Pleasance, whose career has been filled with smaller supporting roles since playing Blofeld in You Only Live Twice a Decade Earlier, was happy to take a starring role. For the role of Lori, Carpenter originally wanted Anne Lockhart, the daughter of Lassie star June Lockhart, but the young actress was tied up with a commitment to a new television show that had just started filming called Battlestar Galactica. The production would audition a number of actresses, but only after learning that she was the daughter of Psycho star Janet Lee, would Hill consider Jamie Lee Curtis for the role. P.J. Soles and Charles Cipher, both who had been featured in Assault on Precinct 13, were cast as Laurie's friend Linda and Town Sheriff Brackett, respectively. And newcomer Nancy Keyes, who was dating Carpenter's friend Tommy Lee Wallace, would be cast as Annie, but she decided to be credited as Nancy Loomis. The role of Michael Myers himself would be played by Nick Castle, a friend of Carpenter's from USC Film School. Tommy Lee Wallace, another friend from USC, would work multiple roles behind the scenes as art director, production designer, location scout, and, once production was complete, Co editor. It was also Wallace who would take a $2 William Shatner mask, purchased from a costume store on Hollywood Boulevard, and alter it to become the most famous mask in horror history. What has always amazed me the most about Halloween is just how quickly it all came together. The movie shot for four weeks in May and June of 1978 and was edited, scored, and in theaters four months later at a completed budget of $320,000. As this would be Compass's first theatrical release, and they had very little money to promote the film, they would skip television advertising altogether and only use theater newspaper listings instead of a proper display ad, hoping that word of mouth would bring audiences in. They would bring in a sub-distributor, Aquarius Releasing, to help get the film into markets like New York City and Philadelphia. Opening on Wednesday, October 25th, 1978, on 198 screens nationwide, including 98 in the Los Angeles metropolitan area and 72 in New York City, Halloween would gross $1.27 million in its first five days. Aquarius would make an unusual marketing move then that is considered commonplace today, not only releasing the film into theaters, but also showing it on a local New York City pay cable channel and making it available for purchase on video cassette at select Video Shack stores. By week two, Compass would start buying small display ads in certain alternative newspapers like the Village Voice in New York City. And despite the fact that most of the nation didn't get a horror movie called Halloween released into their area until after Halloween, The film would play for several months and gross more than $47 million by the time its run ended in early 1978. Critics, for the most part, hated the movie if they even bothered to review it. The New York Times never bothered to review it, but in part because there was a strike that shut down the paper for three months, which was only resolved two weeks after the movie came out. The Los Angeles Times didn't review the film until November 5th, nearly two weeks after its release but there were a few critics who were aboard for the ride from the very start, including Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune and Tom Allen of the Village Voice. By the end of 1978, Erwin Bonds was eager for there to be a sequel, especially considering the open-ended coda to the original film. But neither Carpenter nor Hill were all that excited to be a part of it. Carpenter was busy directing Kurt Russell in a TV movie about Elvis, and was developing a new horror film called The Fog. As Yablons understood it, he and Carpenter had a first-look agreement that anything Carpenter planned on making after Halloween would first be brought to him, Yablons, and if he couldn't have Halloween Two right away, at least he could have the next John Carpenter film. Except Carpenter had taken The Fog to Embassy Pictures, one of the myriad of many major studios in Hollywood, because He felt Yablons hadn't held up his part of their agreement that Carpenter would get 10% of the profits from Halloween in lieu of a larger upfront paycheck. Yablons would sue Carpenter, Hill, and Avco Embassy President Robert Rehm for $4 million for breach of contract. The parties would settle. Avco Embassy would still be able to produce the fog, and Yablons would get the rights to Halloween, too. Once Carpenter and Hill were done, with The Fog, and got their first profit participation check from Compass for more than a million dollars, they would sign on to Halloween 2 as writers and producers. But Carpenter had bigger things on his mind, namely his next project, Escape from New York, which would also be produced by Avco Embassy, and would re-team Carpenter with his Elvis star Kurt Russell, as well as his Halloween star Donald Pleasence. Deborah Hill really wanted to direct Halloween too, but she also didn't want to be seen as some kind of Carpenter protege. So they would instead hire Rick Rosenthal, a recent graduate of the American Film Institute, to make his feature debut. Hill and Carpenter had seen Rosenthal's AFI student film The Toyer, a horror film that relied on pacing and dialogue to move the story along, instead of the ever-increasing amount of gore that late 70s and early 80s movies were exhibiting, to thrill and scare audiences, which fit in with their vision of what Halloween 2 should be. The first Halloween film, like Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, featured almost no bloodletting on screen. Hill would tell an interviewer for the Los Angeles Times on the eve of the release of Halloween 2 that she felt chopping of people's limbs wasn't scary or entertaining, but disgusting. She also mentioned to a Variety reporter when the shooting of Halloween 2 ended that she felt the Halloween films were terror films instead of horror films. Befitting a sequel to a surprise success, Halloween 2 would have a budget of $2.5 million, nearly eight times larger than the first film. Not only would Curtis and Pleasance receive a bump in pay, the film would also be a union production. But Compass didn't have the, that kind of money just sitting around, even though they had just sold the network TV broadcast rights to Halloween, to NBC for $3 million. As that money was already tied up with the productions and releases of several other Compass films. So Yablons would get financing from Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis when Yablons attended the Cannes Film Festival and Film Market in May 1980 to begin a worldwide pre-sales campaign for Halloween II. According to the lavish presentation in his office, Yablons promised foreign distributors that Halloween 2 would be released in America on October 25, 1981, in more than 700 theaters, which hooked De Laurentiis in. Dino, you see, had spent years trying to find the right opportunity to become his own distributor in America. That opportunity, ironically, would come a few years later, thanks to the sale of Avco Embassy to Columbia Pictures. We covered that story in our 21st episode in September 2020, which you'll hopefully check out after you're done with this episode. Halloween II would begin production on April 6, 1981, with most of the film being shot at the recently closed Morningside Hospital in Inglewood, just down the street from the Fabulous Forum. Other movies and television shows that would shoot at the hospital would include Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Ten to Midnight, and V, The Final Battle. The film would also shoot in Pasadena and West Hollywood, and would complete production six weeks later on May 18th. However, the crew and Curtis and Pleasant would stay on an additional three days as Carpenter needed to shoot some extra scenes for the television version of the first movie, which, after some trims by the network censors, was about 12 minutes too short for a two-hour program block with commercial breaks. Carpenter would also reassemble some of the cast and crew a few months later, after Rosenthal had completed his cut of the film. Carpenter realized horror movies really had changed in the three years since Halloween, and audiences were expecting the wild gore and nudity that they had become accustomed to, thanks to movies like Alien, Friday the 13th, Phantasm, and Scanners. Carpenter would reshoot several scenes, which would turn Rosenthal's deliberate thriller-terror film into the kind of slasher-splatter film that Deborah Hill didn't want it to be. The tonal shift would ruin the working relationship between Carpenter and Rosenthal, and between Hill and Carpenter. The couple had broken up shortly before the release of Halloween, and outside of contractual obligations for Halloween three, Hill and Carpenter would end their professional relationship, not working together again until Escape from Los Angeles in 1996. But while the film was in production, Compass would shut down. As we've discovered multiple times over the past 62 episodes, they made the same fatal error that so many other indie distributors made of trying to grow too quickly after an unexpected initial success and unable to recreate that success of that one film. Because the film was financed outside of Compass, though, the film still had a number of options to make it to theaters. Dano De Laurentiis was at the time flirting with purchasing Filmways Pictures, which had gone from being a production company to a distributor in early 1980 and had an early success with the release of Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill, and planned on bringing Halloween II to the company as their first release under his ownership. But after a closer examination of their finances, he decided against moving forward with his purchase of the company. Filmways would themselves close shop after the July 1982 release of Summer Lovers, being absorbed into Orion Pictures. We covered that part of that story back in April 2020 on episode 10, the first part of a five-part miniseries on the history of Orion Pictures, which you will hopefully check out after you're done with this episode. Instead, De Laurentiis would take the film to Universal Pictures which would release the film in 1,211 screens on October 30th, 1981, and it would be the number one film across the nation that weekend, with a gross of more than $7.4 million. However, critics were none too pleased with the tonal shift from what made the first film unique, a near absence of gore, to just another slasher film. And like most horror films released in October, once Halloween season was over, the film would quickly fall out of the top 10. When its run was completed in early December, Halloween 2 would sell $25.5 million in ticket sales, putting it second amongst horror films released in 1981, behind American Werewolf in London's $30.5 million gross, but ahead of Graduation Day, Friday the 13th Part 2, Omen to the Final Conflict, and The Howling. Ironically, the television cut of Halloween II would remove a number of the Carpenter-shot gore scenes and reinstate a number of Rosenthal's original footage. Days after the release of Halloween II, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter got together to develop what would become the third movie in the series. They weren't quite sure what they were going to do, but they knew they didn't want to bring Michael Myers back. And they knew Jamie Lee Curtis was ready to move on from Laurie Strode. By chance. Nigel Neal, the creator of the BBC series Quartermass, was in Los Angeles doing some rewrites for John Landis' planned remake of The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Or, more specifically, he was about to leave Los Angeles because Universal had just canceled the remake, in part because Landis was insistent on shooting the movie in 3D, and Universal didn't want to compete with their big summer of 1983 3D movie, Jaws 3, and in part because of the controversy surrounding... Landis, after the death of Vic Morrow and two child actors on the set of his segment for the upcoming Twilight Zone movie. Ironically, Carpenter himself would flirt with a remake of Creature at Universal ten years later, but that movie never happened either. But once he learned Neil was no longer tied up on that film, Carpenter, a huge fan of the Quartermaster series, would call on the writer to come talk about Halloween 3. Neil would be given free reign to write whatever he wanted. Don't worry about the first two films. Go whatever direction you want to go in. We're planning to take the series in a new direction anyway, with a different movie each year exploring a story involving the holiday, and this will be the first in that new direction. So Neil went back to his home in England and returned to Hill and Carpenter in Los Angeles three weeks later with a completed screenplay. Neil's story involved a psychiatrist who uncovers a plot by a sadistic Halloween mask-maker to kill millions of children through a strange Celtic ritual by embedding a little piece of Stonehenge into a microchip attached to his company's popular line of masks, which is what the final movie is about. But you'll notice Neil's name appears nowhere in the credits for the film. This is because Hill and Carpenter, as much as they genuinely love the script, felt the overall story was a bit too British in its reserve and humor, and they would spend a few weeks working with Tommy Lee Wallace, the jack-of-all-trades on the first movie who was being promoted to director on Halloween 3, after original director Joe Dante left the project, rewriting the script to make it more American in nature. Carpenter would add little touches like naming the town most of the story takes place in after the town where Don Siegel's invasion of the body snatchers took place, and making the story more of a pod movie like Siegel's classic. He'd also give the movie a new subtitle, Season of the Witch, in honor of the George A. Romero movie of the same name from 1973. When Neil heard about the changes to his script, he called Hill and Carpenter to request his name be removed from the film. Tommy Lee Wallace would be given final credit for the screenplay. One major thing Hill, Carpenter, and Wallace would change about the series was to retcon. Halloween 1 and 2 to make them exist as movies within the world of Halloween 3, which would be seen on a television screen in a commercial announcing its television debut that coming Halloween night. And Jamie Lee Curtis would make a cameo of sorts in the film as a telephone operator heard during a phone call. The $4.5 million movie would begin production in the small Humboldt County town of Loleta on April 19, 1982, featuring veteran character actor Tom Atkins in his first starring role as Dr. Daniel Chalice, an alcoholic doctor whose care for a shop owner murdered by mysterious men leads him into a strange conspiracy, and veteran character actor Daniel O'Herlihy in a dual role as Cochrane, the evil mask maker, and the titular witch. Newcomer Stacy Nelkin would be cast as Ellie, the daughter of the murdered shopkeeper who assists Chalice in investigating her father's death, and two former Halloween cast members would return in cameo appearances. Parts 1 and 2's Nancy Loomis, now being credited under her real name Nancy Keyes, would play Chalice's ex-wife, while Dick Warlock, who played the shape in Halloween 2, would appear as one of Cochran's assistants. Like Halloween 2, Halloween 3 would have a four-week production schedule and be rushed through post-production to be ready for a scheduled October 22nd theatrical release. Although they had nothing to do with the production of the movie, Erwin Yablons would be credited as an executive producer on the film, while Mustafa Akkad would get a presented-by credit. Dino De Laurentiis, who financed this film, would not take a personal producing credit, but his production company, the Dino De Laurentiis Company, would be credited on screen. Universal Pictures hoping for a success would create a number of unique promotional tie-ins to the film, including a profit-sharing agreement with Don Post Studios, who had previously created the Skull and Witch Halloween masks featured in the movie, and created the Jack-o'-lantern masks specifically for the film, and a novelization written by fantasy and horror author Dennis Etchison. Post would also host mask-making demonstrations on Halloween weekend, at Universal Studios Hollywood. And plans were underway to make Halloween 4 an old-fashioned ghost story. Season of the Witch would open on 1,297 screens across the United States on October 22nd, and it would have a healthy $6.3 million opening weekend. However, that was also the opening weekend of the Sylvester Stallone drama First Blood, which unexpectedly won the weekend with a $6.6 million gross from nearly 400 fewer theaters. The following weekend, Halloween weekend, the two films would finish in the same spots, but Halloween 3 would lose more than 47% of its opening weekend audience, and, as expected, it would drop from second to eighth in its third week, losing another 66% of the second weekend audience. After 11 weeks, the film would only gross $14.4 million, a 43.5% drop from Halloween 2, which itself had dropped 46% from the first film. But despite the relative quote unquote failure of Halloween 3, Carpenter and Hill had somewhat mended their differences after Halloween 2 and were still hoping to continue the franchise as they had always intended, a new Halloween anthology film every year or two, thematically tied to the holiday which the pair would produce and Carpenter would help write. In 1986, after producing Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Cannon Films approached Carpenter about becoming involved in a fourth Halloween movie. Carpenter was, but only if he were allowed to write the screenplay, allowed to produce the film with Hill, and allowed to have final say in its production. Cannon was on board, but Mustafa Akkad would need a little more convincing. Carpenter would approach writer Dennis Etchison, who had also written the novelizations for *The Fog* and *Halloween 2*, to co-write a screenplay for *Halloween 4*. And Carpenter would get Joe Dante to once again agree to direct. Carpenter and Etchison would spend a month fleshing out the story. Ten years after the events of *Halloween 1* and *2*, the town of Haddonfield had banned all celebrations of Halloween. A group of teens in town, including the two kids Lori had been babysitting, Tommy and Lindsay, have forgotten how to celebrate Halloween. There are no masks, no costumes, and no candy allowed in the town during Halloween. Until they learn about a drive-in theater nearby that is planning on hosting an all-night horror marathon on Halloween evening. There's a big town meeting about the screenings. The kids go to the drive-in on Halloween night, and then things go sideways. Is Michael Myers actually back from the dead? Or is someone pretending to be Michael Myers? On the 25 Years of Terror bonus DVD that came with the 2003 box set release of the Halloween movies, Etchison would explain that it was his idea to explore the basic idea that if you tried to suppress something like Halloween, whatever evil you were trying to suppress would only come back that much stronger and that in their attempt to erase the memory of Michael Myers, the town would fuel the teenager's curiosity that would bring him back into existence. Carpenter submitted the script to Mustafa Akkad, and Akkad hated it. He found it far too cerebral, insisted that the character of Michael Myers not be a specter or an apparition or someone else pretending to be him, but a flesh-and-blood killing machine. Carpenter and Hill's response would be to sell their shares of the franchise to Akkad and wash their hands of the whole thing. Joe Dante would leave a Halloween project for the second time in five years, and Yablons and Akkad would rush to find a new writer and a new director for the movie, which they had hoped to get into theaters in time for the 1988 Halloween season. Dwight H. Little, a little-known television director whose sole movie credit was a cheapy Sally Kellerman movie called KGB The Secret War, was hired to direct, and Alan B. McElroy, a little-known writer from Cleveland who had never written a movie screenplay before, was hired to write the movie. But because there was an impending writer's guild strike, McElroy had only 11 days to develop a story, pitch it to a COD, get it approved, and finish the script which he would get to the producer less than 12 hours before the start of the strike. And while McElroy would use several ideas and concepts present in the carpenter etchinson script, he would be the sole screenwriter credited, while sharing a story by credit with three other writers, including one writer who has never received a writing credit before or since. Now, regular listeners of this podcast know that even though I've been a rated tomato film critic for more than 20 years, I rarely review or critique the movies I'm covering on this show, and I don't necessarily intend on going to any kind of detailed critique of them today, but I will briefly mention how and why the series lost me with this film. I get why Halloween 3 retconned Halloween 1 and 2. In order to move past Laurie Strode and Michael Myers and get audiences used to the idea of an anthology film series, you definitely needed to end that storyline. Michael Myers is definitely dead at the end of Halloween 2. Dr. Loomis is definitely dead at the end of Halloween 2. Okay, fine. Then Halloween 4 comes along and retcons Halloween 3 and the ending of 2. Michael is no longer dead. Dr. Loomis is no longer dead. But we're told Lori's dead and her daughter spends some time mourning her late mother. And then they get Michael to fall down a mineshaft and he's got to be dead for sure now, right? Nope. Michael is rescued by a hermit and nursed back to health and is thanked for his kindly concern by being murdered by Michael before he goes on another killing spree and gets tranked by Paul Rudd. Oh, wait, that was the next movie from 1995. Re- there was Return, then there's Revenge, and then there's Curse of Michael Myers. But even though Michael gets injected with a buttload of tranquilizers, he's he still manages to escape yet again, even though he loses his mask in the process. But then the series gets rebooted again in 1998. And hold the phone, Lori's not dead. She faked her death to get away from Michael. But Michael has somehow found her, even though she's been living a thousand miles away under a new name. And she has another child, who's roughly the same age as the daughter she left behind. And Michael has somehow gotten the mask back, and holy crap, We still have five more movies that reboot and revise and retcon and ignore various things that happened in previous movies, and then they start releasing the movies during the summer, and why even bother anymore? I'm sorry, I needed to get that off my chest. And this is a problem I have with many horror series. Friday the 13th, the first one was a rather effective little horror film with a clever twist towards the end. And the second film isn't a great film, but it does try to be a little different from the first film. And then they keep going back to the same, well, over and over again even after the promise that part 4 would be the final chapter, but then they come back next year with a new beginning. Or a Nightmare on Elm Street, fantastic first film, an effective little horror film that really did stand out as something different from many of the horror films of its day, but then it kept going back to the same, well, over and over again until series originator Wes Craven came back in to do something so completely unexpected and brilliant with New Nightmare, only to be rejected by audiences for being so different and brilliant that it killed that series for nearly a decade. Uh, Okay, okay, okay. Back to Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers. Well, that's what audiences wanted, right? They rejected Season of the Witch because there was no Michael Myers, right? Because that's what we've been led to believe. But not exactly. Between Season of the Witch in 1982 and the return of Michael Myers in 1988, the cost of a movie ticket rose 39.8%. So if Season of the Witch made $14.4 million in 1982, that would be the equivalent of $20.13 million in 1988 because the price of a movie ticket doesn't always increase at the same rate as inflation. When The Return of Michael Myers was released on October 21st, 1988, in 1679 theaters, it grossed $6.8 million in its first weekend, on its way to a final gross of $17.77 million after 11 weeks, which means fewer people saw The Return of Michael Myers in theaters than saw Season of the Witch. But Akkad was so certain that Return was going to be a hit that he already had Part 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, in the process of being written, when Part 4 was released. And because 4 was relatively profitable, having been produced for about $5 million, Revenge would go into production in the spring of 1989 in order to make that year's Halloween holiday season. And Akkad also no longer had to worry about Erwin Yablons, who sold Akkad his shares of the series around the release of Part 4, so now there was a singular vision for the future of the series. From all reports, the shoot in and around Salt Lake City was not a very good one. The production only had Donald Pleasance for two weeks as he was already committed to shooting another film in Europe when the production window for Revenge was created. And he did not enjoy working with director Dominique Othenin-Gerard. Pleasance felt the director, who was working on his largest production to date, was trying to steer his performance into being something more overbearing than Loomis had been in any of the previous movies. And then there's the case of the actor playing Michael Myers this time, Don Shanks. He found wearing the mask unbearable as it had no ventilation, and the director refused to allow the props department to add even a couple small holes for Shanks to breathe better. Additionally, Shanks needed to swim with the mask on in 30-degree water for one scene, again wearing a mask with no ventilation, and almost dying during the filming of a scene when Michael smashes a classic Camaro into a tree at about 30 miles an hour. Shanks was told to stay in the car after the crash until the director said, cut. He performed the scene, smashed into the tree, and waited for the director to yell, cut. And waited. And waited. And then the car started to catch fire. And still, Shanks waited even though he was not wearing any fire-retardant clothing. Othan and Gerard, again working on his biggest film to date, was so shocked at the realism of the crash that he forgot to yell cut. Finally, the stunt coordinator, Don Pike, told the director to yell cut before his performer caught fire. The director did, and Shanks was able to escape from the burning car with only minor injuries. Once again, the production was a race against time to get the film completed in time for a Halloween release. Production began on May 1, 1989, completed on June 11th, and was released into 1,483 theaters on October 13th. It would open in second place with $5.1 million in ticket sales, bested only by the first week release of Look Who's Talking. But the reviews were the worst of the series, with critics finding nothing enjoyable about the film which had strayed so far from the suspense of the first film. The Revenge of Michael Myers, like Season of the Witch and Return of Michael Myers, would play in theaters for 11 weeks, but Revenge would only gross $11.6 million when all was said and done. Unadjusted for inflation or ticket price increases, The Revenge of Michael Myers remains to this day the lowest-grossing movie in the entire 43-year run of the series. And it would effectively put the series on the back burner for another six years, while Akkad reevaluated the potential of continuing. But like a bad penny, Michael Myers was destined to keep churning up. At one point, there was a proposed Halloween 6 movie to be written by Quentin Tarantino and directed by Scott Spiegel, the co writer of Evil Dead 2, which would have the man in black from parts 4 and 5, and Michael Myers going on a road-trip murder spree down Route 66. But that idea was soundly rejected by Akkad, and Tarantino was free to adapt that idea into the screenplay that would become Natural Born Killers. Akkad would even extend an olive branch to John Carpenter, asking the director if he would be willing to come back. Carpenter wrote up a proposal that would put Michael Myers on a space station. Akkad would reject that, too. Finally, a burgeoning screenwriter and longtime Hollywood fan, Daniel Ferrans would successfully pitch a cod on a continuation of the storyline from Halloween 4 and 5, which would attempt to explain how Michael Myers could keep coming back to life. Today, the curse of Michael Myers is only interesting in that it's the last time Donald Pleasence would appear in the series, as he would pass away only a few weeks after shooting was completed, and for the fact that this would be Paul Rudd's first major acting role shot a few months before his appearance in Clueless, but released a few months after the release of Clueless. And then, of course, there's the return of Jamie Lee Curtis to the series in 1998's Halloween H2O, which would become the highest-grossing entry to the series at that point, unadjusted for inflation or ticket sale raises. H2O would be considered a direct sequel to Halloween 2, completely ignoring parts three through five, at the behest of new series producer Miramax Films. 2002's Halloween Resurrection would kill off Jamie Lee Curtis at the start, and then bore audiences with some silly story about a bunch of young college students spending a night in Michael's childhood home, trying to figure out what drove him to kill for an internet reality show. This entry would be the worst reviewed in the series to date, and would once again put the franchise on ice. The less said about the Rod Zombie-directed reboot of the series in 2007 and 2009, the better, even though it should be noted the first of those two became the most successful Labor Day weekend releases, a record it would hold until the release of Marvel's Shang-Chi in 2021. And while these two movies were a reboot of the series, unattached to any of the previous movies, they would still liberally borrow scenes, characters, and situations from the first two films in the original series. While he would not be involved in the production, John Carpenter would give Rob Zombie his blessing to make these movies his own and not worry about trying to compare to the originals. There would be more attempts to try and make another Halloween movie after 2009, but they would be stymied in part by the instability behind the scenes at the Weinstein Company, who were able to hold on to the production rights to the series after their contracts at Miramax were bought out by Disney in 2005. Unrelated to any of the charges against Harvey Weinstein, the company would eventually lose the production rights to the Halloween series in 2015 and return to Miramax, who, in the ensuing year since the Weinsteins left, had been sold by Disney to a hedge fund holding company called Film Yard Holdings in 2010. FilmYard would spend years trying to develop another movie until 2016 when they would enter a partnership with mega-horror producer Jason Blum to make a new film. Blum's first stop would be to chat with John Carpenter, who would agree to sign on to the project as an executive producer. He would eventually also take on the duties of creating the score for the new film in 2017. Longtime friends and collaborators David Gordon Green and Danny McBride were announced as the writers of the new film, with Green also taking on the directing duties. They were hired in part because of Carpenter, who was blown away by their pitch. They get it, the filmmaker would tell Bloom and the other producers. Once again, the series would be rebooted and retconned, becoming a direct sequel to the first movie, 1978 original and ignoring any familial connections established between Michael and Laurie in the original timeline. Jamie Lee Curtis would also sign on to star, and Nick Castle, the original Michael Myers, would reprise that role for the first time in 40 years, alongside stuntman James Jude Courtney. With the guidance of John Carpenter, McBride and Green wanted to make a Halloween that honored the original film, which both men were huge fans of by reducing the amount of gore, and in their own words, to Nick Castle at the start of production, to do it the way Carpenter did it. And audiences would respond by making the 2018 movie the highest-grossing film in the series, making more than $159 million. As I finish writing this episode on October 27, 2021, the newest entry in the series, Halloween Kills, has already grossed more than $75 million after only 12 days of release, even though it's also playing on the Peacock streaming service, making it already the 11th highest-grossing film of the year. And another sequel, Halloween Ends, has already been filmed and is scheduled for a release in October of 2022. To be completely honest, I'm not the biggest fan of the series. I've seen all of Halloween's 1 through 5 and H20, And parts of Curse, Resurrection, the two zombie movies, and the first David Green Gordon movie. I'm not a big fan of horror movies, or to be more concise, splatter horror films. I like mood. I like atmosphere. I like hints and allegations. I don't like gore. I don't like jump scares, especially when they are combined with extremely loud and sudden music cues and I don't like needing to look away from the screen because what's on screen is trying to gross me out. I've only ever owned the first Halloween movie on home video when I bought it on VHS in 1997, specifically because Anchor Bay Home Video put out a widescreen copy of the film on tape. Pre-DVD, that was a rare thing for home video, so I would buy almost any movie on VHS that was presented in widescreen, even if it was a movie like Pulp Fiction was which I wasn't that big of a fan of. I also remember being somewhat interested in Season of the Witch when it came out in 1982, but I've never felt the need to revisit it. I think at the time I just liked the fact that they were trying to do something different. So there you go, Jeff. A quick history lesson on the Halloween franchise. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoyed it too. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, Who the hell is Alan Smithy, and why does he make so many horrible movies? And if you don't know who Alan Smithy is, that's fine. He literally does not exist. I'll explain then. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.